Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. A couple of things here before we get into our first story. Just waiting on our uh, guest here. Uh, quite a response regarding the size of cars. Now, we just picked up a 1973 Mini that we bought at the weekend. We are astounded at the size difference in old and modern cars. Did I really used to drive something so small? Says Pandela. <laughs> Another one here. I used to have a Great Dane. I drive an old Fiat Bambina. You don't need an SUV for a big dog, Noanthi. And while SUVs might keep you safe, maybe they are more dangerous for anyone else involved in an accident. So there you go. Mine's a hybrid. Can I just say? Oh well, okay. That's a. <laughs> Still use my electricity to charge it. <laughs> oh no, it's a non. It's a re. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. We'll oh, come right. back to this. Oh, and Professor Ralph Sims says, "How can the panel talk about SUVs without once mentioning the high carbon footprints of the owners, except for a few electric models available?" Now, uh, to this, continuity is key. How getting a regular GP could help your life expectancy. There was a Norwegian study, it was published last year, and it was huge. It involved millions of people, and it found that those who had the same doctor had fewer hospital admissions and used after-hour services less. Stay with your GP 15 years or longer, you will have a 25% decrease in all-cause mortality. How could something so simple as keeping the same GP for years have such an impact on well-being, I thought? By the way, this from Ruth Hill on RNZ Today. With us is Dr. Luke Bradford from the College of General Practitioners, uh, Medical Director. Uh, Dr. Bradford, welcome. Hi, Wallace. How are you? Very well. I hadn't heard of this correlation, but it is fascinating that just this, the mere notion of having the same, I guess, family doctor can have an impact uh, on your, uh, as they say, all-cause mortality. Yeah, absolutely. And we see it from um, admissions and, and development of illnesses through to uh, management of chronic disease and, and prevention of, of them in the same same instance. And, it, and it's from lots and lots of different factors that come in from that relationship over time. What would a couple of those factors be? Would one be, uh, for example, you have a sense of, uh, I, I know with my family doctor, and also the GP I have now have had for 20 years, uh, Dr. Pritchard there, it's one of trust. You can trust them. Absolutely. So it's trust and a comfort. Mm. So a comfort in, in being able to voice those concerns and, and feeling um, supported to be able to seek help when you've got worries. Um, and it is that trust in the advice given and the likelihood to to take up that advice. Before we get to our panel, just this study, uh, Luke, uh, this Norwegian study hmm. published last year, it, 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 it sounds like a pretty big study. Yeah, four and a half million patients they, they looked at and their registration status, um, how long they'd been with the same uh, GP and they mapped that over one to 15 years and then they looked at their number of out-of-hours presentations to urgent care centres and EDs. They looked at their acute hospitalisation, so things that have gone wrong um, unexpectedly and caused hospitalisation and then they looked at their all-cause mortality and it was reduction across all three of those char- um, all three of those categories and in a sort of linear stepwise um manner over time so you didn't have to be within 15 years to see the advantage it, it goes at oh. yearly there's an improvement God, isn't it interesting to wow 
That is absolutely fascinating. Um, thank you, Luke, for that. Uh, I guess one of the questions or thoughts I've got is, as a country, we have quite a subset of our population that don't enrol and do not have a GP for any level mm. of continuity or safety or trust, right? Part of it's yep. affordability, part of it's a whole raft of other things, a system yep. challenge. Luke, if we were to break it down and think of one thing we could perhaps go into 2024 and try and fix as a system with regards to GPs and enrolments, what would that one possible solution be? You, you need to increase both – I'm going to give you two things, but it is the same. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you have to increase the workforce in order to give people the ability to find the GPs near them and to give those GPs the ability to um, mm. deliver care um, to the same patient group in a, in a continuous manner. And to, to do that, you have to um, fund the systems so that people can then access them uh, and, and you can attract the workforce in the first place. Right. I guess the follow-on, just if I may, is how do you get people, you know, to, I guess, want to work with a GP or enrol with a GP? Because I think sometimes it's, you know, we're sending some of our GPs um, out to the rural communities to try and lift um, that level of engagement. But I'm still not seeing the numbers moving as much as I would think. And I I, I appreciate workforce is one thing. But what else could we be doing from a grassroots community perspective to try and get the people to even consider or think about a GP as a first call of action? I I think they're probably already there. I mean, if you look at the numbers we're doing over 20 million consults a year for the New Zealand public um, through through general practices and through the nurses and the doctors and so I think people when they form that relationship instinctively know it I think when you're younger and fit and healthy it can seem like something that you don't necessarily have to worry about and you can defer but um, I think it's having that access people knowing where to be able to go and find mm. a GP and then going and actually making sure that fits right for you I mean yes. It is a it is a relationship over time, and so you have to be able to trust that person and get on with them. Jack, mm, well, you mentioned the word trust, Luke, and I think that's quite a big one. I notice the situation is actually worse for Maori, and how mm. much of this is down to say healthcare getting politicised? I mean, we're talking, we're looking at the incoming government saying we want to get rid of Te Akafai Ora. Does that make Maori trust a doctor less because they're thinking, hang on, we're getting fed this other thing now? Um, does that play into it at all? I think I think the um, the evidence that's come out around that is very clear. Is that Māori particularly value uh, relationships mm-hmm. and a fucker for over time. That sort of um, shared sense of knowledge of the journey that they've been on and, and are facing. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that the politicisation necessarily damages the trust in individual doctors and the, and the relationship. But I think it probably does in the system to be able to provide for their needs. Mm-hmm. The other, I guess, the issue on the other side of the coin, Dr. Bradford, is the GP workforce is ageing, isn't it? There was another report done earlier, I think it was March, that nearly two-thirds of GPs plan to retire in the next 10 years. So you may well be very lucky if you are indeed able to build a relationship, uh, a familial relationship over time with your local doc. Yeah, and we're doing all we can to increase that. We've increased uh, registrar numbers and there's uh, new med school places. We need to convert more of those med school places into wanting to choose GP. 
and that's about showing them what a fantastic career it is. And uh, um, the advantage of continuity of care goes two, well, three ways, but it's, it's not just for the patient. It increases job satisfaction for the doctors as well. Um, but in reality, there does have to be some work done on what that model looks like and how it is sustainable going forward. When, and that's been asked for over the last 10 years. And we hope that it is coming. Right, yeah. Uh, here's one. I had a workplace injury and went to A&E over a week ago. The earliest GP appointment in person I've been able to get is on the 6th of December. We talk a bit about health on the panel, uh, Luke. Um, the, things are stretched, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and and I've said before, it is all one one organism, if you like, as, um, as GPs struggle to fill up the urgent care centres overflow falls into ED and then the hospitals slow down and so we have got this big sort of completely interdependent system um, and and things are stretched absolutely Hmm. Nice to have you on One final thought Jack well, I, I really do hope we can convert some of those medical graduates to become GPs because the numbers there are quite low. Is there something we can do to make it more appealing, Luke, that simply you know, being a GP is a cool thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's some stuff there around what workload looks like. We are, we're prone to suggesting that GPs are all part-time because perhaps they're only in the surgery three or four days a week. But I think we probably have to acknowledge the huge amount of work that goes on behind that in terms of the administrative load and, and the letters and the follow-up and the coordination of the system, which is the GP's role, mm. and probably bring that more into the way the contracting is done so that doctors don't go, young doctors don't look at it and go, oh, no, I want to do 60 hours a week. Yeah. And so, yeah. Mm, very nice. Very nice to have you on, Dr. Bradford. Kia ora. That's Luke Bradford there, uh, Medical Director of the College of General Practitioners. Um uh, cost also a factor, says Sue, $77 for a 15-minute at my consult on the North Shore, uh, and I'm signed up to that one. Um, so I've had a GP for, and why is it? Because the GP's really good, uh, Nuanthi, and I feel no reason also to change. So it's just a mix of circumstance and also, you know, a good GP. Uh, I didn't know that about a massive study, four and a half million patients out in Norway. I mean, have you had the same doctor for a while or not? I have actually. I have, Wallace. In fact, I fired my family, a family doctor. Um, I spread my wings. Um, part of it was trust, but a part of it, I think, was relationship. If you don't connect with the person across the table, it's really difficult to just share and openly and get a sense of, you know, what does health, good health look like for you as an individual. So I've been with my GP now for nearly six years. Absolutely love him to bits. And, and you know, part of it's around that continuity. I yeah, think. here's one here. I had a great GP and I had her for over 20 years, mm-hmm. says Lauren. She's retired two years ago. I miss her a lot. Uh, the issue is booking in to see a GP now. Everything's online. You have mm. to wait for days, sometimes weeks, to see a GP. So many do phone consults now, isn't it? Because I yeah. had a similar yeah. issue. I think I had to wait two weeks of an in-person uh, visit, but I could get a phone consult the following day, so that's what I had to opt for. Mm. Uh, the panel, RNZ National, um, thank you very much for your uh, responses and company uh, this afternoon. Now to this. In 2021, New Zealand became the first country outside of Europe to have an animal research openness agreement to ensure the public are well informed about animal research in Aotearoa. 
But are we? Well, it turns out Kiwis care about the use of animals in scientific research, but not many people know much about how it's regulated. Now, that is according to a new survey by the Australian and New Zealand Council for the Care of Animals in Research and Teaching, which is ANSCART. To discuss, we have Animal Welfare Science and Bioethics Centre um, at Massey University, a Professor Nio Bosley. Professor Bosley, welcome to the panel. Thank you for having me, Wallace. Yeah, great topic this one. Uh, how we care about animal research in this country. Tell me a little bit about the survey. What do you find? Well, what we found wasn't particularly uh, surprising. I guess the majority of people who um, undertook the survey, and it was pretty representative of New Zealand, uh, New Zealanders, the public, most people really did care, at least to some extent, and some people cared a lot. But what we did find is that even though people care, they didn't really understand very much about how it works or what's going on with animal research in New Zealand. I This, this is an issue that was quite heady. It was quite a heady topic in the early 90s, you know, when I was just coming out of Arsene, I guess, uh, uh, Professor Beausoleil. You know, well, animal testing, animal products. Um, I haven't heard so much about it in the last five or six years. And I'm wondering why yeah, that would so be. I guess, yeah, well, I'm not sure if I can comment on why that change has happened. Maybe we're doing better at telling yeah. people what's going on. But um, it's probably important to clarify that when we use the word te- testing, we're probably using it as a bit of a catch-all phrase. So we're really talking about a whole range of different activities that might include the use of animals. So research, um, teaching, and testing is only part of that. And it's probably quite a small part of it, actually. Got a question, Noanthi? Yeah, look, I do. I guess one of the, it's a thought and a question. Um, thank you so much for your time on the panel today. It's, it's fascinating to think about the word care, I guess, as well. Um, and I, I was curious to know, um, you know, how do we actually further define care and how do we actually ensure that that sort of carries on? Because I think it's such a valuable piece um, that's being published in, in some sense, regardless of no surprises. Mm. So when you when you talk about care, do you mean in terms of the way that we interact with animals yes. and the the environment we provide to them? Yeah. So so words that we use are really important, and care is is one of the words that um, I suppose gives us a feeling that we're doing well by animals. Mm. Um, and and I suppose it's really important to say that this is this is an ever evolving sort of area of interest in and of research in its own right. So the kind of research I do, animal welfare science, is really to try to understand what it's like to be animals in the situations that we put them in yes. and how we can actually provide more care for animals and try to understand it from their point of view rather than from our point of view. Yes. Um, because what right. we might think is is a care for us might not be perceived as a care for an animal of a yes. different kind. Oh. So, No, I mm. love that. I absolutely love that. It's a quite a, when you think about that, Jack, that's a, um, quite, a, quite a nice point to make, hey? It is. I think it's quite mm. important because they are sentient beings after all. Um, I do wonder, uh, no, does the Animal Welfare Act go far enough? I mean, we're still allowing mm. things like, you know, things that are abnormal to animals, like um, having drugs being administered to them as part of testing. Is there anything mm-hmm. we can do to substitute that sort of testing? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So is it useful to explain a little bit about the system and how we um, undertake approval of the use of animals for these Mm -hmm. kinds of activities? Yeah, so I thought thought it might be useful to just lay that out and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how 
what we can do, what we can continue to do to improve the lives of animals that are used for in all the ways that we interact with them, but particularly in this case for research um, testing and teaching. So you've referred to the Animal Welfare Act, and, and the purpose of the Animal Welfare Act in general is to ensure that animals' needs are met and that we're preventing ill treatment to animals. And it's important to note that animals are defined in quite a specific way in the act. So, you know, everything you think of as an animal, the beetle in your garden or the, you know, the parasite that we might find in our animals, those uh, don't count as animals under the Animal Welfare Act. So they're quite clear about what animals are. Um, so those are kind of our general obligations to animals that we are responsible for and that we're caring for under the act. But we have a special part in the act, which is part six, and this is to provide a process for approving uses of animals in research, testing and teaching, because sometimes we actually can't meet those obligations that the act is generally set out to um, to make sure that we, we provide for animals. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this part of the act that says, okay, sometimes you can't actually uh, meet animals' needs or you can't prevent all ill treatment, what we might call ill treatment to animals. Um, and so we have a, a process laid out, a regulatory process to make sure that when we do use animals for these purposes, we're doing so in a really um, clear and regulated way. Mm. So it's not just a free-for-all. Before you go, there's one thing I want to know. Kim, cosmetic testing, right, is banned in New Zealand, but does it go far enough? Because apparently we can still purchase products from overseas tested on animals, household products like washing powder, can still be tested on animals in New Zealand? So, yeah, so the Act is quite specific in its wording about cosmetics. And so if you're looking at developing or making or testing cosmetics, um, those products can't be tested using animals in New Zealand. Um, Or if you're looking at ingredients that are intended for those products. But the wording is such that that's only ingredients or products that are exclusively going to be used in cosmetics. So you might argue it's a bit of a grey zone. If we have Mm. uh, products or ingredients that are used for other things as well as in cosmetics, then they are still eligible Mm. to be tested using animals. Ah, very interesting. Professor Bosanay, kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. It's about a new survey on how we feel uh, in 2023 on animal testing. Meanwhile, the issue of big cars still coming up. Struck Gosh, a chord, hasn't it? It was really, it's really struck a chord. <laughs> Thank you for raising this issue about the car size. These beer moths. <laughs> uh, now they're now electric. The loading on roads is increasing exponentially. We will have more weather events involving heavy rain. Many roads are point, to the point of collapse because of these big cars. We might return to the size of cars later on in the panel mm. uh, another day. 26 past four. I want to get to this. So, when was the last time you struck up a convo with a stranger, a random? as some may say. Talking to a stranger is similar to a confessional, said one writer in The Guardian, who has this project. The concept is simple, writes Catherine Carr. I potter around a location, talking to strangers, and ask them one simple question. That question is, where are you going? (laughs) That's odd. Anyway, she says the answers are interesting. The first one was off to pick up the car from a garage. 
The second person, though, was just discharged from the army after her leg was blown off by an IED in Iraq. Catherine wrote that she assumed that the vast majority would tell her to sod off. Guess what? They didn't. Mm. They wanted to talk. And with us is Jackie. Welcome, Jackie. Oh, hi. Lovely to have you on. Now, tell me about your random stranger combo. (laughs) Um, I was walking up Mataruho, which is Bluff Hill in Napier, um, doing a bit of training to walk the route burn track in the week's time. And so I was laden with a backpack, and I stopped to listen to a call of a bird and standing sort of in the middle of the road, and a chap was getting in a van, and he just said, how are you doing today? And I said, oh, I'm happy. <laughs> and he said, oh, why are you happy? I said, because I've just figured out what that bird is. <laughs> oh. So he said, that's the birds. Those are the birds that keep stealing my figs. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that wonderful, Jack? It's just the, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a random moment. Absolutely random. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, proceeded to tell me about his fig trees and those bloody little birds, and they were little... <laughs> Silver eyes and yeah, we just we just got chatting and it was lovely. We you know stopped and chatted for about a good five minutes. Oh, and um, and then went on our way. Mm. Very cool, Jackie. Well, thanks for joining us on the panel. Uh, that's Jackie there who stopped the chat to Australia. I mean, Jack, what about you? I can imagine you're the sort of person who, you know, you see someone on a Wellington Park bench uh, and goes up to them and go, where are you going? Well, actually, I have, you know, certainly tourists when they come and you see them gazing at a map, you know, you just walk up to them going, where are you going? And you do actually ask that. Um, in social settings, too, I, I quite like asking, instead of what do you do, you go, what makes you happy? And you get a very different range of responses. You don't, you <laughs> don't, you, you don't say that. <laughs> you do. It's, it's awesome. And you get into that's a intrusive. Sort of that's condo. intrusive. That is intrusive. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you happy? It's like having a mehi. You know, you just learn about someone's fucker papa. It's the same thing with what makes you happy. <laughs> um, uh, look, I don't know about you, Noanthi, but I'm very. I don't like talking to strangers. Do you not? No, 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 no. Strike me as you would, actually. No, 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 no. Because I'm me and they are them. And they don't want, <laughs> they, they don't, they don't want me in Blockhouse Bay barging into their busy little life. The last thing they want is a random Wallace Chapman coming up to them going, what makes you happy? <laughs> well, that is so funny. I would have thought you would be that type. No. I would go, what makes you happy? I Very do, actually, off. but I don't ask that question. <laughs> um, I do talk a lot to people, particularly on the planes, um, yeah, even just last place. week. Oh, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. You're one of them. I am one of them. I'm always yeah, just okay. like, awesome. yeah, just do. <laughs> and it's fascinating what you can learn, even in a 30-minute plane ride. You're one of those people. Great. <laughs> Remind Sorry, me, that remind, me, remind me never to. Oh, well, I know you. Well, it's yeah. going to be different, wouldn't this it? This is but true. Time will just fly, doesn't it? Anyway, it does. It, just it does. The Jack. problem is, it, it does. doesn't. <laughs> if I'm talking, if I'm sitting next to someone on a plane who insists on talking, it's oh, the look, slowest plane ride. Oh, really? oh look, I would, I would read your face, and if you if you look at me like, oh, for goodness' sake, I would stop. But for the most part, <laughs> most people are very entertaining. <laughs> Yeah, it's what the Greeks call philosophia. So. Okay, okay. Well, um, one, some wonderful uh, text. Um, uh, Jan says, I talked to a random stranger while waiting for the Sky bus at Auckland Airport. We kept talking on the bus. In the end, I just had to ask, tell me something. Are you related to Kiri Takanawa? She just looked like the portraits on my um, uh, that I'd seen of Kiri. She reeled back and said, 
yes, I'm Kerry's niece. <laughs> oh, love it. Um, when I was teaching, I loved doing the before school or after school crossing duty. I mm. made it my purpose to say hello to all the people who walked past, whether they were part of the school community or not. And guess what? I met some really interesting people. Mm. How lovely. Yeah. Uh, Lou says, come to Northland. Most of us talk to anyone <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the question. Uh, do you talk to strangers anywhere? Text me. Two one zero one, and what's an example? A wonderful example you've had. You might have uh, discovered the niece of uh, Kitty Takano. <laughs> All right, uh, the song whisperer coming up in about uh, two minutes' time. Uh, you, we give you the lyrics. You give us the song. Here are the lyrics. You don't have to be beautiful to turn me on.